We are in 1 Samuel. We're in a series we're calling Kings, uh, which is going through 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. So a big chunk of, of what we have in the Bible that really leads up to the exilic period, which shortly thereafter leads to the coming of Jesus. And we're sort of then setting the stage, as it were, for the world in which and the worldview in which Jesus himself comes from as we explore the way that God has, has worked through, with, and um, sometimes in spite of his own people, <laughs> as we have seen. And I messed that up. Ignore this. There's nothing to see here. Um, to set the stage, it is chapter 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is page number uh, 235. But to set the stage from last week, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't been um, with us or this is your first time, uh, to make sure you read chapter 13 at home later on, because that really sets the stage. But I want to give a little backdrop. So what we have is, this is us right here, and all the way over here is Israel. If we zoom in a little bit more and rewind a few thousand years, we get the territory here we call Israel. This is the territory that is currently ruled by Saul. Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And this little area right here is the area we're talking about this morning. And we'll zoom in one more time so we can see... Remember, Saul was a Benjaminite, and this is sort of all happening right here. Remember with me that last week they evoked the anger of the Philistines. They become, the Bible says, literally a stench in their nostrils. Smells terrible. We got to do, you ever smell something terrible? Last night we did. It was the dog's fault, and we had to get rid of it. You, right? You just throw the blanket out of the room, and we'll deal with it tomorrow. That is what the Philistines are doing right now. 3,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and so many troops that it's like the sand of the seashore. You, you can't even see through them. And so the, the Israelites, and they march all the way from Philistine, Philistia over here, march all the way across here to Michmash. We get to say it one more Sunday, Michmash. It's a fun word right there. Say it, Michmash. Yeah, it's, it's just got a nice something to it. And so they have retaken this area, and they have camped there. And so they have, Israel has, is very much under the thumb of Philistia, uh, the Philistines, at this time. Not only this, but if you remember with me that Paul made a very, or Saul made a very foolish decision last week, and he sacrificed in a way that God commanded him not to sacrifice. So now he has fallen out of favor, as it were, with the Philistines, who are now taking over his territory, sending out raiding parties this way, this way, and this way, to make sure sure that all of the supply chain that possibly Saul could get here in Gibeah are cut off. Not only is he being oppressed, but he has fallen out of favor with God. This is a very bad, we could put it this way, there is no silver lining here. There is no silver lining here at all. Now, we might have experienced some of this in our own lives, moments where you're like, there's no, or feel like there's no silver lining. We have all kinds of enemies we don't have Philistine hordes at our gates, but we still have enemies, don't we? Perhaps it's issues at work. Perhaps it's issues with your family. Perhaps it's own, your own issues. Maybe there's a sin or a thought that you can't seem to get a hold of in your own life. But we have enemies all around us. And the question that we, we face, I think, every day as people just living life as men, a lot of times it seems like these things are insurmountable. And the question I think the scriptures give us in, throughout these stories is what will you do when the obstacles seem insurmountable. There's one thing that all of us face, or one enemy that all of us face, and that is the spiritual warfare that we are engaged with on a daily basis, 
Remember the long series that we went through where we had Christian up here, went through the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, which tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his own might and therefore putting on the full armor of God. Why? Why? So that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. First Peter, we listed these out for you too. First Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 9 says for us to be alert because your enemy, your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion and he's sort of hunting through the grass and hunkering down. He's looking for someone to devour. Will it be you? And oftentimes, these spiritual realities, these spiritual things that are happening, are happening in conjunction with physical ones. In other words, those mental or physical or sinful problems that you're dealing with right now are ways, are cracks in your armor that Satan can get into, grab a hold of you, cast you down, and eat you alive. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-4 four, four says this. says that though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world wages war. That our weapons that we fight with are not the kind of weapons that they use. We're not using swords and, and guns and things like that to fight Satan. Uh, on the contrary, we use divine power, he says, to demolish strongholds. And isn't that the situation we find Jonathan and Saul in? They need to demolish Strongholds And Saul, pulling that forward, says, we still need to demolish strongholds. The need to demolish strongholds hasn't, hasn't stopped. The war hasn't ended. It's just shifted in some ways from Philistines in this situation uh, to Satan in our situation. So we demolish arguments, he says, pretensions that set themselves up. And so here we have the mental battle. Right, the, the outside external battle that we have with other people and with temptation and things like that, that we have to demolish those arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of the truth of God. And you'll find this every day, I think, in your life, that somewhere along the road of your day, somebody sets up a roadblock between you and God or tries to, right? And you have to make a decision, what will I do with this? Paul says not only do we have this external battle that is going on, but we also have an internal battle where we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient. Oh, we love that word, don't we? Obedient to Christ. That every time we say Christ, we say king. Remember that? We talked about that. So it needs to be obedient to the king who has the ability, the power, and the sovereignty to command. So we, I think, share a similar story here with, uh, with Jonathan. It is a, a touch different, but it is similar. And the question I, I want to ask you is, if you were in um, their situation, here they are down in Gibeah, and here there is the Philistine horde. I like the sign of, son of Philistine horde, too. That sounds kind of nice. The Philistine horde here at Michmash, what do you do? Because we read in verse 2, remember before last week, Saul had how many in his army? Do you remember? 3,000. Good job. Exactly. 3,000. And in verse 2 of chapter 14, we read that he is down to 600. Now, last week we said the odds were not good, 3,000 to 36,000 plus. The odds have not gotten better. 600 is significantly less than 3,000. And this is the situation that Saul and Jonathan 
find themselves in. What would you do if you were in their shoes? We're going to tell two stories, and they're going to kind of run parallel. One is a story of Jonathan, and one is a story of Saul. And I want you to see the similarities and the differences as we go through these. Jonathan, or we read in verse 2 there that Saul, um, again, First uh, Samuel chapter 14, verse 2, that, that Saul and his, uh, his army and the priests, in verse 3 we read the priest is with him, all these people are together in Gibeah, which is, again, right here, so only a few miles away from Michmash. They have camped there at a cave, a pomegranate cave. So they have two things. They have food and a good place to hide. That's what Saul has decided. And really, that's not a bad choice, honestly. I don't know that I would do anything different, but I like verse 1. Look at verse 1. Look at Jonathan. What's Jonathan say? Jonathan leans over uh, to the young man who carried his armor, his armor bearer, his patsy. And he says, come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison to the other side. Yeah, let's, let's go take a peek. Just go see what they're up to. I love that kind of uh, spontaneity that, that Jonathan has and, and his courage there. Because even to go take a peek at them is a little bit dangerous, isn't it? Now there is, running from here, I'm sorry, this isn't a relief map, but running along this way, right down here toward Jerusalem, there's a pass um, this is a very mountainous region. The farther you get away from the Jordan, the more you get kind of mountains in the center area. And there's a pass that leads down to Jerusalem. So this was sort of a way that you would travel if you were going to go from Michmash or Bethel all the way down to Jerusalem. And there are areas along this that had what the Bible will call uh, like a, a rocky cliff of some kind. And, um, and so you have kind of this position where you have a valley with two steep cliffs on either side. And the pass runs through it. Now the Philistines have taken one side of it. And this gives them a good tactical position, doesn't it? Because now they can, they can see any enemies that are coming. They can shoot or throw rocks at any enemies that are coming. And the enemies have to climb up this cliff to get at them. It's a very defensible, dis- defensible and smart position. But Jonathan is a good Jew. He's a good Hebrew. He is a good lover of God. And so we all know that he has watched Star Trek. And as we know, fortune favors Eric Dush, oh, I am ashamed of you in this moment. I am so ashamed of you in this moment. There you go. Thank you, Carl. Extra Jesus points for you. They're taken from Dush back there. Fortune favors the bold. And this is Jonathan's action here. He's very full of of, of, of valor here in this moment. But I want you to notice where this valor comes from. Look at verse 6. 14 verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man uh, who's carrying his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, this is an, not just an epithet of saying, you know, that these guys are, you know, uncircumcised, but it is a way of distinguishing between those who are in covenant with God through circumcision and those who do not have God's favor. He says, look at those people. They are our enemies. They do not have a relationship with God. Let's go over there. Because I have that kind of courage that flows from this belief and knowledge and understanding of the truth that I have a covenant relationship with God. God is my God and I am one of his people. He says in verse 6 again, continuing, it may well be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. These are the three things that we'll see throughout the story. The first one I see is this. The valor of Jonathan. 
And that coming from his strong trust and the power and provision of God. And I love it. How fantastic is this? We don't know the future. And I, I don't know what you might be struggling with or, or what problem you might have. But we don't know the future as we face those enemies of day-to-day life. Some of them big and fearsome. Some of them not that big a deal. But whatever enemy we're facing, we don't know if God will give us victory on the other side of it. Or whether God will let it come crashing down and allow us to suffer defeat so that he can bring us back up again. We don't know what God's plan is. And so Jonathan puts himself fully in the hands of God and he says, you know what? We're either going to sit here and die or we're going to go and die. And so I might as well get up and go because God could save us. God could do it. Now, remember how many people is he talking about? Two, right? He's left the 600 back in Gibeah. The only person he's taking with him is this other guy, his armor bearer. And and Jonathan has this courage, this this valor, this this powerful trust in God. And I think we're encouraged to have this from beginning to end of the scriptures. Yes? Thank you. Yes. Kids. Don't know a rhetorical question when they hear one. I didn't mean it as a rhetorical one, actually. I'm glad you said something. First, um, we have the same situation in Hebrews chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, Hebrews are, is a, a letter. It's written in the, it's toward the back of your Bible. And it is written to Christians who are really questioning, is God faithful? Will God really see us through? And so the author of Hebrews writes down the story. He says, don't you remember Abel? And don't you remember Enoch? And and don't you remember Noah? And don't you remember Moses? And don't you remember uh, Joshua? And don't you remember Gideon? And don't you remember all of these different people of faith? What was a characteristic that stood out in every single person of faith in the story of scriptures? This, now it is faith that is the assurance of the thing that is hoped for, and the conviction. If there's one thing we need, church, it's more men and women of conviction. People who will stand on a principle and say, I don't care which way the popularity of the wind blows, this is the conviction of faith based upon the word of God. And I cannot be shaken from it. You can kill me and I'll fall on it, but I'm not going anywhere. This is what the people of faith, we see the valor and trust that they have in the scriptures. The certainty of the things that are hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen. For by this conviction, the people of old received their commendation from God and the witness by which we continue to tell their stories. That's why we continue to remember them. Because they didn't flinch. They didn't back down. They saw what God's word declared and they lived it. They lived it. For by faith we know that the universe was created by the word of God. That is, God made something out of nothing. And if God who can make something as grand as the cosmos out of nothing, what is your problem to him? It tells us this, that God is not scared of the impossible. God is not scared of your impossible. But rather, God seems very interested in saving us, especially when it is impossible. You know what Jonathan, did you notice what Jonathan said? For what could stop the Lord from saving by many or by few? If I have all 600 behind me and we go attack the Philistines, God has the same amount of chance of rescuing me than if it's just you and me, Patsy. Doesn't mean anything to God. 
And we've seen this over and over and over again, and that is the kind of faith, reckless faith, that I want to be known for, that I want to have myself. The second thing I notice in this story is that there is leadership that, 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 that comes from uh, Jonathan. He ends up leading his friend here in the way of truth. He also shares in his valor. Verse 7. The armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. As you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now I've got to stop there for a second because I think the English obfuscates actually what's going on right here. Because that sounds like something I would say to my wife. Right? Like, I'm with you, baby, heart and soul. You know? It sounds like a Hallmark card greeting or something like that. And we've we got to remember that the, the Hebrews had, they didn't have a word for like brain the way that we think of it. Rather, they used the word heart for will, stomach for emotion, and soul for life. And so what is this guy saying to, 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 to Jonathan? Is this sort of like a bromance moment? No. This is a moment where he says, listen, what you want to do, your heart, is what I want to do. You want to go and attack those Philistines? Let's do it. And as far as soul goes, I am, you are laying down your life because we're not going to survive this. And I'm laying down my life. I am with you heart and soul. Your will is my will, and I'll lay my life down just like you are. Not afraid. Let's do it. I'm your wingman. We might put it that way in parlance today. I'm with you in this. Um, I, I see this in the New Testament just as well as I see it in the Old. And the reason I keep on bringing up the New Testament is because I want you to see that, that this is one story. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And there is no wavering or changing with God as there is with us. And the God who defeats and who calls forth valor and trust and puts value in that, and who, who, who puts us in positions to then lead other people with that same kind of trust, that same kind of faith, that same kind of courage, is, is alive and well. And in the New Testament, Paul talks to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, watch over your life and your doctrine. Watch over the things that you say and the things that you do. Make sure that you're walking in the truth. Why? Because if you persist in these things then you will save yourself. I want that. Yes? Everybody with me? Yes. And I want that for others. He says, not only will you save yourself, but you will also save those around you here, those who hear you and see you, those who are around you. And this has immense application to your everyday life and to what we talked about last week when I said, you are all leaders. Because if you're not leading people to Jesus in your sphere, your circle, it is unlikely that anyone else is. You're it. You're the Jonathan in your home. You're the Jonathan in your workplace. You're the Jonathan in your school, guys. All three of you are baptized. You're Jonathan in your school, right? You are the one who will lead people by faith. Now, what does this bring about? This brings about favor and closeness to God. Um, what I find interesting is that Jonathan uh, says at one point to, uh, to Patsy here, he says, um, he says, you know, let's go up there and if they, if they notice, us, notice us, if they make fun of us, then we will know that God wants us to go up and attack. If they oppose us, if they make fun of us, if they mock us from the top, we'll know God wants us to attack, but if they ignore us, then we'll know, you know, that, that God's not with us, which I think is the absolute inverse of the way we would live our lives. 
And the absolute inverse of the whole situation, if you're Jonathan, what are you going to hope for if you attack these? The only thing you can hope for is to surprise them. You don't want them to notice you. You want them to not notice you. If, you're, if they're up here and you're down here and they notice you, they're going to throw a rock at your head or an arrow or a spear. Who knows what's going to come down on top of you. And yet, what does Jonathan say? If they mock us, we'll know God has given, us, given them into our hands. Same is true of us today, I think. That kind of courage is what's called for. And, and indeed, the Philistines do. They, they look down and they see... They see the, uh, Jonathan and, and, and his, his noble, noble friend with him, and they begin to mock him and, and make fun of him and say, oh yeah, come on up here and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll show you something. We'll, we'll show you something. Come on up here. We dare you. Uh, this whole time I was reading this story, that's the only movie I kept on thinking of that movie. And Jonathan does this, he climbs up, so he, Jonathan climbs up, uh, up this rocky crag, and we, it must be that they didn't notice him uh, up there or, or something, because he begins to walk along the edge of this crag and begins to grab guys and throw them down, and Pastor who's down on the ground, takes a sword and runs them through, and he gets, he gets away, just pulling them down and running them through and pulling them down and running them through, down half an acre, which is a pretty far way, and I don't know if you've ever, well, you've never been a Philistine, so that has no application whatsoever. But imagine that you were for a moment, and you've got a guy here, and all of a sudden they're not. And you say, well, where'd this, where'd, where'd he go? And you look down, and he's dead, and you look back, and there's a lot of them dead all the way down. What's happening here? And there's a panic that ensues in the camp. And, and, and they begin to grab swords and, and begin to knife each other and fight one another. There's just this great panic. And then all of a sudden, the ground begins to shake as God steps in and shakes the whole group and lets his terror fall upon. There's just confusion and panic. Imagine 36,000 plus people in just one mass of beginning to kill each other. Just go nuts and crazy. panic throughout the whole thing. It's so loud that it travels all the way to Gibeah a few miles away. And Saul and his guys are like, what is that noise? Let's go check it out. And they go to see what is happening. And they see the Philistines. And they're killing each other. They're, they're fighting amongst one another. It's just panic and chaos. And they say, the Lord's given them into our hands. And they rush upon these Philistines and begin to drive them out. The people who had previously run and hid begin to rejoin the army. And Saul's like, we're winning this great victory. We've driven them out. And God gives them a power powerful victory that afternoon because of the valor and the trust that Jonathan put. But remember, there's two stories. There's a parallel story as well. There is also Saul's story. Saul, in verse 24, Saul, in verse 24, as they've been driving the Philistines out, says this to the men that are around him, he says, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So they've been driving these Philistines out like all day long. This has just been a, a kind of a continuous battle. And then he says, no one gets to eat anything until I'm avenged on my enemies. What do you hear here? Do you hear valor? Do you hear trust in God? No, not really is the correct answer. Uh, we see somebody who is rash and somebody who is selfish. We see this going on here in Saul. Saul says, I care about... In fact, why does he want to defeat these, these Philistines? 
Is it because they have affronted God's honor? Is it because they have hurt God's people? Is it because, no. He says, they are my enemies. This is my problem, and I am going to defeat these guys because of this. Notice, notice this. Now, as Christians, again, we're not out slaying Philistines, um, but you ought to be out there sharing the gospel. And that's primarily the way we, we fight against the darkness of this world. That's what God has empowered you to do. That is what he has filled you up to do and directed you towards. And yet I know many, many Christians who, whose interest in sharing the gospel is not their love of neighbor, is not a burning love for the glory of God, and is not a burning faith that they have deeply rooted. It is because they enjoy being right and they enjoy being rude, and they have found religious reasons for being both. Being right is an idol. You are to declare the truth of God, and not everyone's going to agree with you, but what is the motivation behind your interest in sharing that gospel? Is it that you want everyone to agree with you and line it behind you because you enjoy rightness? Because they're so thin, the difference between the two of them. Or is it because you truly love the lost? You truly love the person who doesn't know God. You truly love the Jehovah's Witness, the, the Mormon, the Muslim. Do you truly have a passion for your neighbors who are not equipped to know good works, are not walking the path and, and will not be with you in the kingdom of God? Do you fret over their souls for love of them and love of God? Or is there some other motivation there for you? Because while other people around us often can't tell, God always knows as we are in that battle. Notice, um, and I'm not going to read the, the whole section. Again, I encourage you to read all chapter 14, but I'm going to look specifically um, at verses 31 through 35, and this is the chunk of the story we'll move to next. And as they have continued to, to defeat um, the Philistines and they're pushing them back, there comes a moment where they enter into a wooded area, and Jonathan, who hasn't heard this oath, sees that there's honey all over the ground. There's, there's honeycombs, there's honey all over the ground. This was prior to the five-second rule, so it was okay. Hadn't been invented yet. And so he sticks his staff into the honey, and he picks it up, and he eats it. And the Bible says his eyes brighten. This is not prior to sugar rushes. And so we understand what's happening here. He's getting a boost of energy after fighting all day long. And he looks around at all the guys, and they're just sort of passing by this. It's like, this is like manna, man. Like, we've, you gave, God gave this to us. Why aren't you eating this? And they tell, they tell him the story of what Saul has done. And, and I'm going to summarize Jonathan's uh, answer here. And he says, oh, dad. Oh, dad. And so uh, Jonathan, exasperated at his father, who is, he says, troubled Israel, they continue to this, this press and push, and they end up defeating the, Isra- the, the Philistines, and they send them all scattering. But there comes a point that they, by evening, when they finally defeated them and finally hit this point, in verse um, 30, 32, the people pounce on the spoil, and they take the sheep and the oxen and the calves, and they slaughter them with blood. That is, they kill them and begin to eat them with the blood still in it. Now remember, with me, 
your Bible that Genesis chapter 9, Noah was commanded by God that the people were not to eat anything with blood in it. In fact, this actually goes not just to Israelites, but to all people all over the world. God will account for every drop of blood, be it animal or man, that is spilled. And he says, you shall not eat blood, for it is the life. Right? And so what we see here is a grave sin. Now, why are the people in sin? Now, the people are choosing to do sin. I understand that. It does lay on them. But Saul has done what? Created the situation in which the people are led toward sin. Now, I don't know that on Judgment Day any of y'all are going to be blamed for the sin of other people. But if through our leadership... If through the way that we live our lives, if through the Christian walk that people see in you, they don't see the valor and trust, but rather they see the rash and selfish behavior, and you then lead other people to sin, woe to you. Woe to you. And Saul stops the people. He he says, what are you guys doing? Stop it right now, and and, and we'll make an area, and we'll we'll slaughter the animals there, and, 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 and... you, you got to stop. And so he tries to step in and fix the mess that he's made. Yet he has drawn, because of Jonathan breaking the oath, because of the people breaking the, the commands of God and eating blood, he has created a, a further and more dastardly situation in that he has created, rather than closeness and rescue from God, he has created distance between God and the people of God um, throughout this, this, this behavior, this situation that he has, he has created. Now, I'm going to leave it to you to finish the story. I really want you to go home and, uh, and read it tonight with, your, with maybe your small church or with your family or whatever and see how the story wraps up. But I, we've read enough of the story to kind of get to the place where we can draw some sharp distinctions between two ways of life, two paths that sit before us here today, and one path is, is very straight and very narrow and very, very full of, of very legitimate fear, valor, and faith. Jonathan has set his course toward God with courage, but not with a lot of backup, right? He has no one with him except for his, his, his trusty armor bearer. And it is the two of them that are going to go up against these Philistine hordes, this great army. It's so mad. It is impossible. There's nothing more impossible than Jonathan beating the Philistines. Nothing more impossible. Doesn't matter how good at kung fu you are, Bruce Lee would be taken down by that many Philistines, right? It is impossible. You with me? And what does Jonathan say? God can save. By many, by few, by little, by a lot, God can do it. And since I can either sit here and sort of wallow in the mess, or I can push forward and maybe God will rescue me, I'm going to push forward and put my trust in God. And that, my friends, is the people we ought to be. It's the people we ought to be. It's the kind of people who look at a cross and say, what's death? What shame? What's suffering? What's trial? What's tribulation? What are these things to us when we say a Savior who went to the cross is the one who is now highly exalted, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Fact. Done. It will happen in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue, every tongue will declare Jesus Christ as Lord. What are these things to us?
impossible. What's that word mean? Or we can live in this broad, easy road of Saul. We can hide out in Gibeah. We can sort of gather as much food and hope the Philistines don't find us. We can become rash and selfish. And even when God gives us this amazing victory, we treat it disrespectfully. We begin to take on a pride in our own accomplishments and say, well, no, I did this. You know, it's about my enemies and God loves me so much that he's going to give me. No, this, in Jonathan's world, this is about God and God's glory. And Saul's world has caved in. It is about me and preserving myself. What kind of person are you today? Because one has victory at the end of the story and, and one has defeat. What will be your story? What kind of person will you be when we remember you in the cloud of witnesses one day, when the Lamb's book of life cracks open and we hear all of the stories of all of the trials and all of the temptations and all of the battles, be they mental, physical, spiritual, all of those battles laid out, what will we say of you? Will we say, man, that person looked a whole lot like Jonathan? Or will we shake our head and say, that was a tragic story just like Saul? Because you are made for more. You are made for more. If you would but seize it through faith. And that being in Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we come to conclusion this morning, we offer an invitation as always to any who, uh, maybe you don't know Jesus and you need somebody to walk with you. Or maybe you're facing a, a, a trial right now that is so deep and so dark, you need prayer. We invite you to come forward. The elders will be down front. I'll be down here. We want to walk with you. But don't leave today without making a decision to be like Jonathan. Let's stand as we...